Pride Institute is an LGBTQ-specific treatment center for substance use disorder and addiction. Pride was first opened in 1986 as a direct response to the HIV-AIDS pandemic. We provide care to adults 18-plus in residential and outpatient settings. I'm Luke. And I'm Kaylee. And together, we are the co-hosts of the Proud Voices podcast for Pride Institute. We're here with Tom today. Tom, thanks so much for taking the time to join us. We are, uh, yeah, we're just going to start yeah. this one off like we do every other. Uh, so Tom, why don't you just give us a little background? What led you to Pride's Doors initially? Well, I had a very long journey many years ago to get to Pride Doors. Um, I started drinking heavily when I was in college, but then I went into so-called controlled drinking where I was still highly functional for many years. And that went on for actually almost 20 years, but it progressed slowly. And I finally got to the point where, like many others, I had some DUIs and uh, intoxication arrests and so on. And, uh, you know, basically I was becoming a mess. But uh, about that time, uh, drugs came into the picture and that really uh, started a, a downfall. So I had maxed out all my credit cards. I was just really desperate situation, didn't know what to do. So I started trying to reach out to some uh, places and tried to find some information. I ended up uh, with a uh, psychologist, which again, I think my higher power was uh, active right from the beginning because it turned out he was a gay recovering alcoholic. And uh, I spent time with him until we got to the point where he said, uh, basically, I can't see you anymore unless you go to some kind of treatment. Uh, and that was kind of a real, I was angry at first that he, he put it that way. But at the same time, on another track, when I was really uh, in bad shape in a magazine, I saw an advertisement for Pride. I don't remember exactly what it said, but it was welcoming. Somehow it, it drew me in. So I don't know the details. I was in blackouts at, at times during this period, but somehow uh, the people at Pride, I talked to them, they somehow got me on a plane, which I barely remembered, and ended up at Pride Doors uh, 34 years ago. And that was about the second year that Pride was in operation. So it was a long journey, but I got there. Yeah, I wonder. So a lot of times people don't seek treatment until after they've gotten in trouble with the law. So you had mentioned, um, you know, getting a couple DUIs and arrests were a big part of getting you into treatment. Um, do you think, do you look back at those DUIs and, and trouble with the laws kind of like a saving grace? Do you think you would have sought treatment if you hadn't gotten those? Um, in my case, I tried to uh, rationalize those arrests, and they were just part of the, of the big picture, but not so much as the fact that when I was just physically desperate, uh, you know, and basically I was becoming partly suicidal. Uh, it was more of a cry for help type of suicide. And as I was uh, falling into the, mostly the drugs and, and mixed with the alcohol all at the same time. Hmm. When you say you 
for a controlled drinker, what did that look like for you? Um, you know, were people just not able to see that you were drinking or, you know, isolating or was that just because you, you know, hit it very well? Um, being kind of an obsessive person, I actually scheduled my drinking binges. So I didn't want to interfere with work during the week. And so I planned I would go uh, out at 11 o'clock on Saturday night and get totally wasted. Um, I would then over the years, what happened is I'd say, well, all right, well, I started out Friday night. So after a while, I'd say, all right, let's add Saturday night in and then add Wednesday night in. So uh, I still was not drinking in between those times, but I look forward to the, the time when I was going to go on a, some kind of a real binge. And then I guess what what were you what was life like back then? Because I think, you know, Kaylee and I have only been with Pride Institute for three years and we talk about all the time um, about how, you know, we were open before it was cool to be LGBTQ inclusive. So I wonder if you can kind of give us um, a day in the life of Pride back in the 80s. Yeah. Well, uh, first, just to start with, when I arrived, I really didn't know what to expect. Um, I was thinking some kind of a dreary prison-like atmosphere. I just had no idea. When I walked through the doors, everybody, all the, the current residents seemed very happy. And I thought, well, maybe they're giving them some kind of drugs. Uh, they, <laughs> they, they, they couldn't be that happy to be there, but they were. And they soon paired me up with a, a guy from my home state uh, as a sort of a chaperone. And it was the first time I really felt uh, part of a group uh, and because the sexuality issue, you know, had been a problem for a long time. I, I knew what I was, but in those days with uh, AIDS and HIV, it, it was definitely a time to stay hidden as much as you possibly could. But while I was a pride, it was the first time I, I didn't have to do that. And it also was the first time it opened my eyes to the fact that gay uh, and LBGT people could actually live a normal, fairly normal life. Because many of the people there, uh, of course, they had alcohol or drug problems, but they were living uh, in cities openly as gays and i didn't know that was even possible because i came from a, a small town and when they told me uh, you know how their daily lives were and what they did uh that really opened my eyes so when i got out of uh pride after 30 days i uh, among other things i did what sometimes isn't recommended but i made a geographical change i Moved to a bigger city, and again, my higher power was hoping I got a good job. And I then discovered in visiting some of the folks that I had been at Pride with that uh, they could lead fairly normal lives as gays. I just didn't know that was possible even. Yeah, I, I think it's so funny you talked about right away how when people enter like treatment, and I know I thought this even like before starting that pride was like, I thought it would be this super negative, heavy, scary kind of prison-like atmosphere. And it's like the exact opposite. 
Um, my first day uh, on the job, I remember walking in and somebody was playing the piano from the Taylor Swift songbook. And I don't want to discredit the work we do here because it's obviously really important work and you're in therapy eight hours a day, 10 hours a day sometimes. Um, but to your point, it is such a wonderful space because it's so everybody's kind of on the same boat, if that makes sense. And they're for the same reason. And it's also a time when people stop using and so, you know, you start to see like clear eyes again and people just being happy in, in the moment. And it was uh, good in so many ways, uh, you know, the, all the different paths that were opened up then. Uh, we, we talked a lot about, you know, being gay and being alcoholics, of course. And that dual path was was what really uh, led me to, to stay sober. And I got a good start there with AA because that was a big part of my life once I left uh, Pride after the 30 days and got my graduation t-shirt and uh, went out into the world scared at first of what it would be like. But uh, I had the tools that I needed to, to move ahead. And uh, I think it's, uh, let's see here. I've been uh, clean and sober for 12,410 days, which sounds strange you know uh, scary when i look at it that way but uh, of course it makes me an old man which i don't like but <laughs> uh on the other hand it shows what you, what you can do just one day at a time each one of those days i was you know practicing what i had learned doesn't mean it was easy there were, yeah, it was struggles all the time i uh, began to realize that life and, and recovery was a, a roller coaster. You know, at times things were going up and going well, and, and they would head back down. But what saved me is I knew that as I went back down, that the ride would always go, go back up again. And uh, I still remember that in, in life today. Things don't always go well. There are crises and depressions and so on, but they, yeah, things go back up again. Yeah, I think that's such a good point uh, that you make that, you know, just your outlook on life um, is really so important in, you know, what happens to you. Um, I'm curious, you said you made a geographical change after you got out of treatment. I found that so interesting because a lot of times when people move to bigger cities, you know, that fast paced life they get into, you know, using drugs and alcohol. And we've even had people on this podcast that have had to move to smaller cities because um, a bigger city, that fast paced life perpetuated their use. Uh, just wondering if you had had any like uh, triggers when you moved to a bigger city, if that was difficult, um, you know, that lifestyle, that fast paced life, um, was that difficult in, you know, keeping you sober? For me, it was almost the reverse. Uh, in the smaller town and, and back in the 80s, uh, some of the drugs were almost socially acceptable. So the, the usage was was very heavy there. And of course, in a smaller town, you form a, a group uh, of users and who you call your friends or turn out to not really be. But all the triggers and the use was in the small town. When I went to the bigger city, of course, it helped that I had a good job there. I didn't know people. Uh, and what I immediately did was uh, get into AA group. Uh, and I was very fortunate there was a, a gay AA group formed there in the city I went to. And I became very active with them. So I avoided the, uh, the triggers a lot, just physically avoided them. 
But we got to the point where uh, we hung out together, the folks in that in that AA group. We formed our own clubhouse. Basically, that was that was my family and, and friends that I relied on. And we actually uh, relying on each other. We could go to the, the gay bars and hang out there. And it was always in our mind, you know, that the alcohol was there and the drugs were there. But it almost helped to, to realize that we could go and live a normal life uh, as long as we had that support uh, blanket around us. Yeah. And you had mentioned a couple of times the importance of AA in your journey. Um, do you still go to AA meetings um, when you were in early recovery? How many meetings were you going to? Um, and you also mentioned that there is a gay specific meeting back then, which I think is so crucial as well. Um, but I wonder if you can expand on that a bit. Um, when uh, I first, uh, the first few years, I would say two or three years, I was attending AA meetings just as often as I could. Uh, many weeks, it was every, every night. But I traveled on business. And what I found is that uh, I could rely on AA. I could call the central office in any city I went to to find where there was a meeting and be welcomed there. Uh, so I actually had a family all over the, the country, and uh, I relied on them a lot. But I attended meetings uh, you know, constantly for all those years because I had to eventually work through the, the 12 steps. And I still have my big book that I got at Pride. And when I left, all the, the other uh, folks there with me signed uh, like he did, used to do high school yearbooks. And uh, I still look at those signatures and the messages some days. But uh, as time went on, I began to, well, basically, I began to get a life. And uh, I met my partner, who's now my husband, uh, 30 years ago. So that was uh, about the third or fourth year of uh, my sobriety. And I had uh, uh, friends outside of AA, but I attended, still attended the meetings. And eventually it got to the point where I was doing 12-step work. I was at the meetings to help others, which, of course, helped me. And I began to, to volunteer at some uh, adolescent treatment centers as a, a volunteer counselor and uh, to reach out to others. Over the years, uh, my job took me to different cities. And the more I expanded and what I'll say, I had a life, uh, the less I felt the need to attend the AA meetings. And gradually, I did not attend very often. But the good thing was I always knew that security blanket was there that I could reach out at any minute and find a, a meeting and, and know where to go. 30 years marriage, that for, you, have you been married for 30 years or you've just been together 30 years? Uh, well, of course, we couldn't get married. Uh, right. But yeah, we've been together for 30 years. And the first year, 2014, that you could get married in some states, we got married then. So That's we've actually been legally married for seven years. That's incredible. Yeah, and congratulations. It's a testament to your, your work to each other, commitment okay. to each other. Yeah. 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 That's, uh, and we're just like any other couple, you know, the same same uh, marital issues. And we, we really aren't any different than another couple. And nowadays people accept us that way. We're, we're just openly accepted wherever we go. 
once in a while, somebody's startled on the phone and they start to, you know, customer service starts to ask about my wife and you correct them. They, I think, are embarrassed more than anything to realize they were wrong. Oh, totally. Do you think that, you know, a 30-year relationship would have been possible um, prior to getting sober? I don't think any relationship would have really. Uh, it would have been superficial. And uh, I had... Uh, crushes on people and, you know, friends, but it was all based on uh, usage. You know, if we were using together and doing things together, the only commonality we really had was the alcohol and drugs. So I don't think any relationship of any uh, significance would have even been possible before recovery. And Tom, you mentioned uh, this network of friends that you used with a lot uh, previously. Was it hard to cut them out? after you got out of treatment or was it pretty easy because you just moved? Uh, how did that look like for you? Um, well, so, uh, not surprisingly, when I was back and was no longer buying and providing things uh, and a place to hang out, they began to disappear on their own. So um, they weren't what you would call real friends. Now, there was a core group, though, that, that was a small group. And the city I moved to was only an hour and a half away. So some of those I still stayed in contact with. And they were very understanding about recovery. Uh, they didn't quite get it. To, you know, at first, some of them would think, well, you can have just one drink. Let's go to the bar. And eventually, I you know, um, helped them understand my, my situation. But most of the so-called friends in those days, like I say, things were socially acceptable and my apartment could be packed with 20 or 30 people who I wouldn't call friends. Eventually, they all disappeared. And uh, that explained, you know, who the real friends were. Right. And I think that's such an important lesson for, you know, people to learn. And it's there's no easy way around it. Um, but you really do realize who's there for you and who's not the older you get and the more, I guess, secure you become in yourself. But again, that's that's no easy task to get there, right? Right. At, at Pride, uh, they had a, you know, I had told people I was going to some kind of uh, career counseling center for a month, you know, back home. Nobody, I didn't tell anybody what I was really doing and going to Pride. Uh, everybody knew you know, um, my situation. Uh, it turned out it wasn't any secret. I thought a lot of people did not know. But one of the exercises they had us do at Pride was to write a letter back to key people, uh, parents, uh, key person at work, uh, a key friend, and basically tell them what, what my situation was and what I was doing. So I didn't go back home and be able to hide again. You know, I would have some kind of open support at home. Uh, at that time, they protected the fact that you were gay. I remember they, even the documents and so on were blue for gay people and white, you know, for outside use. So uh, basically the, it turned out that, and I also had to write to a friend, a couple of friends. So I wrote to all those people and uh, they were all so supportive. And it was a great idea uh, because once I got back, I didn't have that barrier that I had to get through of telling people, you know, about myself. 
And I do recall that they made that a mandatory thing and said, you know, if you're going to stay here, you have to do this. And uh, that was a big problem for me. I literally couldn't sleep. I stayed up nights and talking to the night nurse and, you know, decide, trying to decide whether to do that or not. So finally, I just made that decision and went ahead and wrote those letters. And it was a great relief. Yeah, I, I can imagine. And that's funny you bring up the blue paper because I think um, we had we just talked about this, how um, I, I don't think you're like able to scan those papers or like the words on the page doesn't come up. And so it's completely confidential. Um, and then another method that we do is like, um, we'll highlight over stuff because things that get highlighted, like don't end up showing up either. Um, but I can imagine the horror back then of one, you know, admitting to the world, you know, I have a drug problem, alcohol problem. And then two, like to also maybe come out in the same sentence is, would be really, really hard. Yeah. So as I say, back, back then, that was the, the, heydays of the HIV fears in, in the population. Uh, I remember that the uh, housekeepers that were contractors who, who came in uh, wore big yellow rubber gloves all the way up their arms you know, because they were scared of, of uh, getting anything from us. That's horrible. But I, just with the lack of information and I guess the fear mongering that was going on, you know, and we don't have to go down that route, but um, yeah, yeah, that I can't imagine. But it wasn't a problem because we were among friends, and uh, as I said, I learned that the, a lot of these folks lived in, in bigger cities and they 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 lived open lives uh, without any problem. Um, after we left Pride, I went to visit some of them, you know, where they lived, and that helped me realize that I I could okay, did have a family eventually and and live a normal life. So, Tom, um, tell us a little bit about where you're at today. Well, um, not, not too long ago, I spent many years working, uh, of course, and I was a, a probably an overachiever, overworker. I worked for some form of government. I worked in military, local, state, federal government jobs for 50 years, and uh, I just retired a couple of years ago. So for any retiree, it's a, that's a whole change in your life. You have uh, ac excess free time, yeah, especially when my partner, my, my husband is younger than me. So he's still working. So it gives me a lot of free time and I'm, I'm still adjusting to that. That uh, basically I'm out right now looking for volunteer possibilities in uh, places around town. A lot of them are shut down due to the pandemic. They aren't taking new volunteers. Um, I'm also just starting to look at uh, yeah, religion again. I had not had anything to do with churches for all those years and because they, they were not gay friendly and I stayed away from them. But there are some now locals that are very openly LGBT uh, friendly. And uh, so I'm just starting to look at that possibilities and, and others that part of my life. So life changes. Um, things are, are different now. 
I, am, I don't have as many so-called friends because they weren't really friends, but the ones who do have are, are real friends. They don't, uh, in many cases, even know, know or care about, about my past history. Right now, it's more about who I am as, as a person. And uh, I still know that uh, if things uh, ever bothered me, I could always uh, pick up the phone and find a, an AA meeting. People ask uh, a lot of times, you know, aren't, aren't triggers still bothering you? And I do still time uh, on occasion have uh, so-called euphoric recall where I start to think about those parties back in the 80s and think, oh, wow, that was fun. But it only takes me a few minutes to now remember what that led to and that that is, you know, those thoughts go away fairly quickly. But in a store, I go to the supermarket, do my shopping, I can pass all the beer and alcohol. And to me, it's it's poison. I think I know in my mind that if uh, for any reason I ever picked up one drink again, it would lead to disaster. It almost would be a, a method of slow suicide. So I don't even think about it. I just walk by those things with with no thought about it. I'm looking for something else to buy. Well, Tom, I'm so happy for you. It sounds like you were able to shake off all these labels that were placed on you, you know, being uh, gay and an addict and just live your life authentically as Tom um, today. And so for everyone out there listening, it is possible um, long-term sobriety, um, having fun in sobriety, um, all those things. And we are so appreciative that you joined us today. Thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Proud Voices. You can find us where you find all your favorite podcasts. Don't forget to follow and subscribe. We'll see you next time.